Good morning. Well, I was gone last week, um, and I just found out that Dan Flynn talked about baseball. And so this will be our last baseball reference of the year. We talk about it apparently more than ESPN. But I am a fan of the Cincinnati Reds for the National League and the Boston Red Sox for the American League. Yeah, which I think is fine, partly because, yeah, the Cincinnati Reds will never make the playoffs, and the Red Sox always make the playoffs. So it works out perfectly. Well, this week you might have seen that a video went viral, and it dealt with a Cubs fan, so you can imagine this was not a good thing. So what happened was there was a foul ball, and it went on the, obviously on the sideline, and so the, the side coach, he caught the ball, and he went to toss it to a little kid sitting on the front row. I think I have a picture of him. So yeah, cute little kid. There's a rule of baseball. You toss it to a child. What happened, though, was when they tossed the ball to this kid, they actually dropped it. Now, I don't know if it caught him off guard or if he had been watching the Cubs filters and seen so many errors. But either way, he dropped the ball. Sorry, Cubs fans. That is my last dig. I am done. Again, I'm a Reds fan, so I have to pick on you. So So what happened was the ball actually rolled under his chair, and as he went to grab the ball, the guy behind him grabbed the ball beforehand. And you might be thinking, well, was he getting the ball to give it to this nice, cute little kid? No, he wasn't, of course. What happened was he grabbed the ball. Here's the guy. He did a little fist bump. He even clapped his hands. I got the ball. And then what looked like a scene out of the Garden of Eden, he actually then gave the ball to his wife to participate in this sin. Yeah. It's bad news. You don't want to be this guy. He's actually, as Tim said, he's now known as the worst human alive. Well, even though that was a small incident, there's something inside of you. When you watch this video, if you saw it, it just swells up saying, that isn't right, and I hope this guy doesn't get away with this. When you watch it, you hope they both get what's coming. You hope the kid gets a baseball, and the good news is he did. He got a signed baseball afterwards. And you actually hope this guy gets a punch to the face. (laughs) And I don't know if he's had that or not. But again, if you watch the news, you know there are much bigger evils than this that happen every week and every day. And what our world knows that we need in these situations and what we cry out for is justice. We want wrongs to be made right, and we want evil to be punished. And this is so because God puts that in our hearts. He gives us a desire to see justice because we live in a moral universe where real right and real wrong happen. And God promises to us that he actually is the just judge and that all wrongdoers will receive punishment. And while that's good news in one sense, we want a just God, the Bible says this ends up working against us as sinners because we're deserving condemnation. It creates a problem for us. Will God be just and will he then punish sin? Or will God be merciful and will he forgive us? And the Bible makes it clear that God is just and he gives all people what they deserve. So how then can he be merciful? Well, what we'll see today is that God can only extend mercy on us because he executed justice on Christ. So today we'll be looking at God's mercy and justice from Romans 3. So if you have a Bible, turn to Romans 3, 21 to 26. If you don't have a Bible, I'm sure you have a smartphone. You can go to Bible Gateway. Get off Facebook right now. Go to Bible Gateway, Romans 3.21. I'll read it for us. It says, But now, 
the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This all was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, as Tim said, this is the last week in our God is series. And in honor of the start of school, today I'm going to strengthen your theological vocabulary and we're going to learn 10 words. So instead of the traditional Baptist three-part message where they all rhyme, we're just going to talk about 10 words. And we'll be in Romans 3, 21 to 26 the whole time, but I won't be going kind of phrase by phrase like normal, but it will hopefully be logical. We'll look at 10 words, and I think these 10 words, they actually do explain Romans 3. They summarize the gospel, and they explain how God can be just and merciful. Well, our first word that we'll see is justice. And this is a key theme throughout the whole Bible, that God is just or righteous, same word, and because of that, he pursues justice. As Jen Wilkin writes, God's justice is his love of his law on display. And when we say God is just, we mean God always does what is right, good, according to his character, and law. He will pursue justice, meaning he will never punish the innocent, but he will never let off the guilty. Now, God's justice is objective because he sees and he knows all things. So there's no sin that we can hide from God. And God's justice is also impartial and equal because he treats all people the same. We all get what we deserve. That's what justice means. In Romans chapters 1 to 3, so leading up to our passage, Paul has been hammering this point home and trying to make it clear that God is righteous and just. Romans 2, 6 says that God will render to each person according to their works, whether righteous or unrighteous. And then in 2, 11 it says, because God shows no partiality. So God is just. Our second word we're going to look at is sin. Some of these will be shorter, some will be longer. But our second word is sin. And while God's justice, his righteousness, is a good thing, it obviously then creates a problem for us as sinners. Romans 1 to 3, it makes the case that God has looked upon all of us and he has made the verdict that we are guilty, that every single person is guilty. There are no innocent ones, no guiltless ones. There are only the guilty Again, look at Romans 3, 23 in our passage. It says this, that all, every person has sinned. Now to sin is just to do wrong. It's to break God's law. It's to offend God. And God, as the lawgiver, he's established what is good and right from what is wrong or evil. And we know right from wrong, but we often choose what is wrong. And because of this, Romans 3.10, it says again, that none is righteous, no, not one. 
And we need to personalize this message and just remember that I am not an exception to that, that I am unrighteous. Because part of my hope this morning is that as we hear about God's justice and as we hear about God's mercy, that what we sing this morning will be true, that we will then run to his arms. As we see our sin, as we see God's justice and his judgment, that should cause us to run to get mercy. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What that's saying is that the law can't help you. It can't save you. The more you see of the law, the more you actually see how sinful and guilt, guilty and trapped you are. You know, just think about it. Have any of you in here today, have you ever put someone or something or yourself before God? Have you ever lied in the smallest degree? Have you ever coveted something that you didn't have or that someone else had instead of you? Have you ever lied, hated, been prideful, been selfish? often why we don't feel as guilty as we should is that we compare ourselves to those around us or because as humans, we're prone to justify almost anything that we do. But justice, when we think about justice rightly, it means comparing ourselves to God's law, not to the people around us. You know, in our government, if I steal an iPhone, I'm not let off the hook because I didn't commit corporate fraud. There's no, that's a small thing, therefore you can go. And so before God, sin is sin. Sin is not that thing out there that terrible people do or the really bad stuff, the really evil stuff. The Bible tells us, and the Bible is the authority, it says sin is anything that is contrary to God's law and will. And so this morning you have to stop and ask yourself, when I compare myself to God's law, not to the other people around me, How do I fare? There's no grading on a curve here. It's either pass or fail. Am I righteous perfectly, or have I ever sinned and I am called unrighteous? Well, again, in 3.23, what it tells us is that God has already done the verdict, that he's looked at us, he's seen our sin, and he says, all have sinned. There's not one who is righteous. Well, this leads us to our third word, condemnation. Because every person has sinned against law and broken, sinned against God and broken his law, it says every person is condemned. And condemnation is just that part of the courtroom process where the judge gives the verdict. And our sin results in conviction for our crimes. The coming down of the judge's gavel says that we are guilty. As we'll see later, the opposite of justification is condemnation. Justification means you are declared in the right, that you're accepted, that you're vindicated and set free. And condemnation is the opposite of that. And because we all have sin on our account, we all stand condemned. It's the only verdict we will hear before God on our own. And there's no getting around this justice. There's no getting let off. God will not pervert justice. Well, this leads us to our next word, wrath. I know no one wakes up on Sunday morning excited to come hear about wrath. 
But this is an important truth, an essential part of both the gospel, but also who our God is. If there's no wrath from God on sinful man, then there is no justice in the world. You see, conviction without consequences or without punishment, it minimizes the gravity of law-breaking, and it calls into question the justice system as a whole. So we must be held accountable. And when we talk about wrath among humans, it's usually some kind of outburst from someone. It's not an objective, controlled, judicial response against evil. It's usually someone's just flipping their lid and they're losing it, and that's what we mean by wrath. But biblical wrath, God's wrath, it's actually just his righteous, his holy, his controlled, his objective and impartial response to evil. J.I. Packer says says it this way, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. So God's wrath is just the response, the outcome of when his holiness rubs up against condemned sinners. Our sin condemns us and God's wrath acts with equity so that no sin is ignored, that we're never given a blind eye, and we're not let off the hook. God's wrath, it's therefore not a primitive part of Christianity. It's not something from the Old Testament. It's not something we want to move past, but it's an essential part of who God is and how justice will work in our world. Gavin Ortland writes this. He says, I would go so far as to say a God who never gets angry, a God who leaves the cry of the victim and the downtrodden, echoing without answer for eternity, such a God would not be good and therefore would not be God. It's difficult to worship or believe in or even imagine such a God. We'll just quickly insert one application here. We should praise God for his justice, that we should thank him because we live in a world and follow a God who will not let sin and evil and wrong go on unpunished forever. So when we hear news of evil, or when you're wronged personally, you can praise and you can trust in the God who will bring all evil to account. So God's justice, God's wrath, it's not a thing to be afraid of, to deny, to deny or to hide as a Christian, but it's something to embrace and praise him and thank him for. The Bible says that God warned Adam and Eve that if they broke his command, that death would come. And just like a child who looks at their parents when they're about to do something wrong, knowing they're doing something wrong, it says Adam and Eve still sinned. And because of that, death has come upon all. Later on in Romans, in Romans 6.23, it tells us this. It says the wages of sin is death. That means what our sin, what your sin, what my sin deserves, the right payment, the wages, is death. And the bad news is that physical death is actually a pointer to the final and the complete sentence of God's wrath and spiritual death. The Bible tells us that sin and condemnation result in God's just wrath, which is ultimately poured out in eternal punishment. To sin against a perfect, holy, infinite, eternal God requires a severe punishment. And so God's wrath leads to eternal separation from him in hell. 
And so for us, physical death, it's actually meant to be a reminder, to give a visible picture that something is wrong and that's why we die, but it's pointing to a more serious, eternal death. It's meant to lead us to repentance and faith now so that we can get off death row before it's too late. So understanding God's justice and his wrath should cause us to run and to flee. Again, one more quick application on this. I would say understanding justice, sin, condemnation, and wrath, this can be a really important apologetics or evangelism tool. You know, why do people across all cultures have this desire, this sense, this yearning and longing for justice? Why do all people want to see wrongs be made right and want to see evildoers punished? Well, I think it's there because God has put it in our hearts to long for justice in our fallen world, but also to see that our sin must be held accountable. So our worldview, as Christians, our worldview and our doctrine, it actually allows us to understand and to explain how morality, how justice will come to bear in a fallen world. So as you talk with unbelievers, as you share the gospel, you can actually make sense of that desire for justice within them. That, that should point them to God, to a creator who is a just judge and how he will actually one day make all things wrong right. And as you talk with them, you can also show how that then gets us into a problem, how our sin rubs up against God's justice. Well, moving on to our next vocab word today, we'll talk about mercy. But this should be raising a few questions for us. If God is just, as we've said, and as the Bible makes clear, and sin must be punished, How can any of us in here today have hope that we will not live under judgment now or for eternity? How can we we actually talk about God forgiving sinners freely without compromising his justice? Well, the good news of the gospel is that God provides and accomplishes a plan that fully upholds his justice and that allows him to give full mercy to sinners. As the Puritan Richard Sibb stated, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And Romans 3, 21 to 26, and this is why this is such a beautiful text, it tells us that the cross of Jesus, that this is the place where wrath and mercy come together. So to see how God truly can be just and truly be merciful, we need to actually understand, well, how does redemption work? So to do that, we have five more words. We're going to look at propitiation, redemption, faith, grace, and justification. And the next word we're going to look at is actually propitiation. And anytime you have a word with five syllables, that's always impressive. So follow with me in Romans 3, 23 to 25. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So for the divine justice system to work, and for a person to receive mercy, you can't just remove the penalty and the guilt unless the sin is also removed. And propitiation, that word that we probably never use, it's so important because it's actually doing that. It's dealing with sin and dealing with God's wrath. That God's wrath must be satisfied, 
meaning that justice has to be paid. That if God just sees sin, he sees guilt, but he chooses not to punish it and to look the other way, then God would be unjust. For any time sin, any time conviction and guilt goes unpunished, it leaves um, justice unpaid or unsatisfied. So when Jesus dies, what he's doing, he's actually paying for sin to remove it from the picture. That he's dying to be a legal substitute for sin who takes our debt, our law-breaking on his own account, and he pays it on, with his very life. What, that, what happens then is that God is propitiated. You could think of it like this. In my life, I've had my fair share of speeding tickets, unfortunately. What happens is I've been found guilty, and I've been handed out a fine. The fine from the government is essentially the wrath of the government upon me because I'm condemned. Now, when I actually pay those speeding tickets, I've satisfied the justice completely, and the government is then propitiated. So it's a legal satisfaction that takes care of not only the guilt, but the fine, the condemnation, and the punishment in place. Or you could think of it like this, and this is purely hypothetical, of course. But imagine you were married to someone who might occasionally become hangry. Purely hypothetical, of course. So what happens is you're in the car, that person hasn't eaten for a few hours, they're starting to become hungry, and you start asking some annoying questions. What you do is you, as I call it, wake the bear, so to speak. Now, if you were smart and you've learned, you would keep some goldfish, maybe a Snickers bar, in your car. Now, as that person finally eats a snack, their hunger subsides. The wrath goes away, and you might say they are propitiated. Purely hypothetical, of course. I've not ever experienced that. But if you did, that would be an example of propitiation working. And don't worry, I did ask my wife if I could share that, and she said yes, so thank you. Well, this idea of propitiation in the Bible, it is similar in that God's wrath has been satisfied, it's been taken care of, and it's been paid for. But again, to note this, propitiation is not an emotional term when it comes to God. We're not settling him down, we're not distracting him with something temporarily. But it's a legal term, meaning that justice has been fully paid fully satisfied, and fully taken care of. God doesn't require this kind of propitiation because he's cranky, but because he's holy, righteous, and just. And Jesus, Jesus is a sufficient sacrifice because his blood and his life as the God-man is of infinite value. That on the cross, Jesus is then bearing God's wrath for us. That he takes the judicial, legal punishment for sin, and he pays it himself. He fully satisfies God's just demands of the law for death. As we saw, the wages of sin is death. And so this beautiful truth that Christ bears the justice of God and he pays it, it actually then brings together the love and the mercy of God. That God's love is upon us, but because wrath is in the way, he sends Jesus to die to get rid of the wrath so that all that remains is love. We sing this earlier in the song, Rock of Ages. It says, Rock of Ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee, Jesus. 
Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Well, propitiation refers to what Jesus does to God. He satisfies his just wrath. But Romans 3.24, it uses another theological word, redemption. Redemption refers to what Jesus then does for us or to us. Redemption is a term taken from the Roman slave market. What often would happen is someone would become in debt, and then they would become a slave to the people that were their debtors. Well, what could happen is another person, someone who cared about them or loved them, they could come along, they could pay off their debts, and then redeem that person out of captivity. We actually saw this when we studied Hosea as Gomer redeemed his wife. Well, Romans 3.24, it says that we were justified by his grace as a gift. How? How does this happen? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So propitiation and redemption are just two different ways at looking at the cross or atonement. That Jesus' death is the legal payment for sin, which both satisfies the just wrath of God and it rescues us out of the pit that our sin creates. So through the blood of Jesus, captives find forgiveness and freedom because of redemption. And those who used to only know God's wrath can now know love and peace through propitiation. Well, as we move along, our eighth word, beautiful word, is grace. If justice is giving you exactly what you deserve, and mercy is giving you, is not giving you what you do deserve, then grace is giving you something that you could never deserve. So this is again in verse 24, it comes right before redemption, and it tells us that we are justified, that we are declared righteous in Christ by his grace as a gift. So what the Bible and Romans in particular makes clear is that salvation, propitiation, redemption, justification, all of this work of salvation is entirely a gift, that it's not paid for by us, that we don't earn it, work for it, deserve it, keep it, that it's entirely God's work. And either God will do it fully and we will receive it freely, or we will try to earn it and we will only pile up more debt. This is what Jonathan Edwards said. He said, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's all we contribute is our sin. And grace then is amazing because what we need most comes to us freely because it costs Jesus everything. But we might then ask the question, well, how do you then receive this? Or is it just the case that all people are forgiven freely? Are all people saved because of this kind of grace? Sorry, we got, we're not at justification yet. Our next word is actually faith. So four times in our text it says that the benefit of Christ's death are not applied to all. It tells us that not all people in the universe are saved. So Jesus, he fully accomplishes redemption. We don't accomplish it. We don't complete it. And yet to receive it, to be justified in Christ, you have to grasp it through faith. Notice the following verses. Again, look at your Bible with me. This is chapter 3, verses 22. It says that we have received the righteousness of God. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
And then in verse 25, it says it again, that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then the very last phrase of verse 26, it says that God is just and he is the justifier, but of who? Of the one who has faith in Jesus. So salvation is in Christ alone. It is by grace alone, but it is through faith alone. That though it is all found in Christ and given freely to us by God, that we get it by grasping on to Jesus through faith. You know, if at Christmas season somebody gives me a gift and I take that gift and I unwrap it, I've not added to it. I've not done a work. I've not earned it. It's still 100% a gift, and I should see that as an act of kindness. But if somebody gives me a gift and I just leave it over there under the tree, I never take it as my own, I will not receive or enjoy the benefits. And Romans 3 is telling us that faith, our faith is the instrument. It's the thing that actually grabs onto Jesus. It grasps him, and when we get Jesus, we get all the spiritual blessings found in him. Now, the trouble so many people have with this, even believers, is that it sounds too good to be true. Now, if you're actually given the gift of seeing your sin, if you feel conviction, if you right now even think about how bad you really are, and you know how bad you are, we know our sins, we know the things we do that no one else in this room knows. If you know that, it's hard to imagine that we could be redeemed, forgiven, and saved freely, that there are no strings attached, that we don't have to do anything, that we don't have to earn it or pay for it. That is hard to imagine. And it's hard because nothing else in our world works that way. And even the people we love most, they don't usually treat us with a free and purely selfless grace. Well, as the girl Maddie Ross says in the great Western True Grit, watched it this week, great movie, she says, you must pay for everything in this world one way or another. There is nothing free except the grace of God. You cannot earn that or deserve it. So salvation is in Christ alone, it's by grace alone, and it is through faith alone. So there is one other word to learn this morning, and it actually puts all the pieces to it together. It explains how this works, how God can actually then save us, forgive us, by grace through faith. It's the word justification. And I've kind of assumed justification throughout this sermon without actually pointing to it. We did talk about atonement. We talked about the cross and how the cross pays for God's wrath. It provides forgiveness, and it gets sin out of the way. It kind of brings us to a state of neutrality. But the problem is that doesn't provide righteousness. That God says he demands looking upon people, seeing a righteousness in order to accept them. So if we can't be righteous on our own, if, as it says, the law can never make us righteous, we're, again, we have a problem. So if God demands righteousness, if we cannot provide a righteousness, we have to look to someone else for it. So where does that lead us? And you guys are good churchgoers. You know the answer to that is Jesus, that this is why we look to Jesus, because he does provide that righteousness that is required, and it's absolutely essential. Look at verse 22. It says, The very righteousness of God, not a meager righteousness, not a couple good deeds, it says the righteousness of God is actually given to us through faith in Jesus 
Christ. And the way this works is when we place our faith in Jesus, the Bible says that we are united to him, that we become one with Christ. And what that means is he is now our captain, our head, our representative. So not only then is our sin put on Jesus, but his righteousness is put on us. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It summarizes this great exchange. It says, for our sake, for your sake, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So because by faith we are one with Jesus, God counts his righteousness as our own. It now actually belongs to us because Christ belongs to us. So when he looks at that perfect righteousness of Christ that now clothes us, that's now on our account, he can say you are righteous, that you are vindicated, that you are declared in the right. And that is what justification is. We are not declared guilty. We are declared free, forgiven, and righteous. So this passage is telling us that God is just, and we've seen his justice, but God is merciful. And the reason is because Jesus is a perfect Savior. That Jesus takes our sin so we can take his righteousness. That Jesus takes our condemnation and God's wrath so that we can take his peace with God and righteousness. That Jesus takes the death we deserve so that we could have the eternal life he secured. The just dies for the unjust so that God, God can be both just and the justifier of anyone who has faith in Jesus. I think my favorite hymn is And Can It Be, and it has, this is the last stanza to And Can It Be. The author is rejoicing in this kind of free grace. It says, because of this now, no condemnation I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. And because of that bold, I approach the eternal throne, and I claim the crown. How? Through Christ, my own. As I close, I just want to give a couple final applications. The first is that we should reflect God. That if God is merciful, we should reflect that mercy and grace. That we should not treat people how we think they deserve, but that we should show the kind of free, undeserved grace and mercy that we've been given. So think about this week. How would my interactions with people, how would my relationships look different if I'm a person of mercy and grace this week? God is merciful, and as God's image bears, we should be merciful. Well, the second thing is that this is a call to belief in Jesus to receive this free gift of salvation by his grace through faith. And again, you don't have to earn it. You won't deserve it. You can't pay for it or earn it. All God asks is that you repent and believe, that you turn from your life, your works, your ways, you give up on those, and instead you trust in Jesus, that you take him as your king and as your righteousness. And it doesn't matter how good or bad you've been. None of us are so bad that we can't receive God's righteousness. None of us are so good that we don't need God's righteousness. What happens is the cross puts us all on equal footing as sinners, that we all deserve condemnation, but God offers to give us grace. So my encouragement would be, if you're here this morning, 
you've never trusted in Jesus, if you thought you could get away with your sin, if you thought you could hide in your sin, if you thought your sin was not a big deal, then we need to remember that God is just, that he will punish sin. But because of that, that should cause us to run to the arms of Christ, that God offers mercy, that God offers grace, that God initiated a way for us to be saved and redeemed and made fully righteous through Christ. So trust in him today. And then finally, I would just say there might be nothing more practical for us as believers than understanding the doctrine of justification. You see, when we sin as believers, we're tempted to turn back to a gospel of works. We think, surely God cannot accept me or forgive me because of my sin. Surely he cannot love me. Surely I've blown it too many times or I've exhausted the patience and long-suffering of God. And what this does is it raises doubts about our assurance. It steals our comfort and our joy. Or when we sin, we don't actually then repent and we turn to God immediately. What happens often when we sin is we think, okay, I'm guilty. I need to put myself in a spiritual penalty box. I need to beat myself up for a while. I need to feel guilty, and then maybe I can go to God. Or maybe if God seems distant from you today, you're believing the lies that he is against you, that he is not for you, and that he will never turn to you. So in any of those situations, Romans tells us today the good news that if we are in Christ, then all of his work applies to us. That justification means God's final verdict in the future has been pronounced over us now. That our sin is paid for, it's forgiven, and that includes our past sin, our sin right now, and the sin we'll commit next year, next month, and next week. All of that is forgiven, and we're also clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. That because Jesus propitiated God's wrath, and he fully satisfied it, that means there is no wrath left for us today. That God's wrath is now replaced by God's eternal smile upon us. And this is the ground of our assurance. That Jesus never sins away. He never casts away. He never divorces. He never pushes away those who are one with him. So this means we can never lose that gift of righteousness. We can never lose that verdict of being justified, of being declared, because we will never lose Jesus. So when we sin, when we stumble or stray, when our assurance falters, or when God seems distant, don't look at yourself, don't look within, but look at Jesus and remember all you have in him. That because God looks on us and God sees us as one with Jesus, that when he's looking at you, he accepts you and he loves you with the same love and acceptance he has for his son, Jesus Christ. Because of that, we can rejoice with Paul. This leads him to say this in Romans 8.1. All of this truth about justice that leads to justification leads to rejoicing. Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore, for us today, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the story over you. No condemnation is left. Which then raises the question for Paul or leads him to exclaiming that if God is for us, who can be against us and what can be against us? So the gospel means we no longer relate to God according to our works, but according to Christ's works for us. So believers, sometimes we just need to be washed over with the gospel. So know today that justification means you are 
redeemed, that you are reconciled to God, that you are forgiven, that there is no more wrath for you, and now there is only mercy and love. We need to know today that Christ satisfies God's justice against you so that God can shower his mercy upon you. One last stanza. This is from the hymn, In Christ Alone. This leads to us singing, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry until our final breath, that now Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man, including nothing I can do, can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power and in the love and in the justification of Christ, I'll stand. Would you pray with me? God, when we think about our sin, we know that we should be condemned and found guilty. God, we feel that. And yet even this morning, it leads us to saying thank you. God, we thank you that Jesus is that perfect Savior, that Jesus took all of our sin upon himself, that he took care of all the wrath, so that today all we have left is grace, mercy, and love. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe that. When we turn back to a gospel of works, help us remember this free and beautiful gospel of grace. And thank you that even now we get to sing that, we get to lean into it, and we get to worship Jesus because of this beautiful truth. And pray all this in his name.